Well, whether you realize that or not, that song that we were just singing together really is an expression of the very essence of Christianity, particularly that line, my Jesus, I love thee. Loving Jesus is what the Christian life is all about. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter. You may be thinking, I thought we already finished 1 Peter. I thought we were supposed to be going to 2 Peter. Well, Lord willing, that'll be next week. 2 Peter will launch into that letter. And what we're going to learn in 2 Peter is that what 2 Timothy was to Paul, his last words before he died, Second Peter is to Peter. They're his last words before he died. And the theme, really, of Second Peter is remembering. And multiple times, we're going to see that Peter said, hey, I'm writing these things just to stir you up by way of reminder. These are some things I don't want you to forget after I'm dead and gone. And I think it's just a good reminder for all of us that we're forgetful people, aren't we? And we just need to be regularly reminded of things, even the simplest of things, the most basic things. We forget. And here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, a verse that we're familiar with because we've already studied this passage recently, I think that Peter gave what may be the most simple yet profound definition of a Christian in the entire Bible. Notice 1 Peter 1.8, and though you have not seen him, you what? Love him. None of us have ever seen Jesus with our own two eyes. But that doesn't keep us from loving him. In fact, our love for Jesus Christ is the main evidence that our lives have been truly transformed by him. A follower of Christ is first and foremost a lover of Christ. And yet every true and honest Christian knows that Christ is worthy of far greater love than we could ever express What's more, we don't always love him the way that we should. Our, our passion for Christ seems to ebb and, 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 and flow and it fades. And whether that be the, 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 the distractions of the world or the allurements of Satan or just the sheer busyness of life, it, it seems that the fervor or fire in our hearts for Christ dies down and, and often needs to be rekindled. And we learned what to do when that happens this past Wednesday night in our study of the seven churches of Revelation in Christ's love letter to the church in Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, he commended this church for all the things that they were doing right. Revelation chapter 2, verse 2 says, I know your deeds and your toil and 
perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and that you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and, and they're not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. And so they were a serving church and they were a, a, a sacrificing church and they were a, a steadfast church. They were a separated church. I mean, you read those verses, you think, man, that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. It was a hardworking, persevering, righteous living, doctrinally sound church. It appeared on the surface to, to be doing everything right, everything they should be doing. But then you go to verse 4, and there's a big but. <laughs> but I have this against you that you have left your first love. This bastion of biblical truth, bustling with spiritual activity, had forsaken the most important, most critical element to the livelihood of any church, and that is love for Jesus. And the love that had characterized the, their early years had diminished. They were now 40 years into their, the life of their church by this time, probably into the second or third generation, and their spiritual life had grown cold, become mechanical, as it's often said, the honeymoon was over. They were still active in ministry. They were still orthodox in their theology, but they were missing something. They were no longer doing all of that out of love for Christ. And in his love for this church, Christ prescribed a treatment plan for their waning love. And he commanded them to do three things in order to rekindle the flame of their love for him. Verse 5 says, Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. So first of all, they were to remember, to think back on how things used to be when they first came to know Christ, when they were totally devoted to Christ, and they used to enjoy sweet intimacy with him. And then, then they were to, to, to repent, to change, to do something about that, to, to go in an opposite direction, which begins, I think, by confessing our, our lack of love for Christ, telling Christ Christ, I know, Jesus, I know that affections matter to you in my relationship to you. I know you don't want to just be acquaintances. You want to have an intimate relationship with me. Lord, would you restore and reignite my passion for you? Or as John Piper suggested, that we pray unceasingly for passions that match his reality. So we're to remember, we're to repent, and if you don't want another R word, repeat. We're to repeat. He says, and do the deeds from do, deeds you did at first. In other words, get back to doing the things that you used to do to cultivate your relationship with Christ, to praying and reading the Bible and uh, regularly attending church and 
serving Christ, telling others about Christ, and do all of those things again, even if you don't feel like it, trusting that as you obey the Lord, the feelings will follow. And so herein lies the solution to lost love. And as I said on Wednesday night, we need to obey these three commands by faith, believing that they are the means that Christ himself has ordained for us to fall in love with him all over again. I don't know about you, but I was very convicted after Wednesday's message. Um, I'm not just preaching to you, I'm preaching to myself. And I did have a few conversations with some of you that expressed the same conviction that that was uh, hard to hear. It hit too close to home. Like the grenade went off in our foxhole. Uh, That letter was talking to me. It was talking to our church. If there was a letter uh, of these seven letters that I think most applies, best applies um, to our church, to my heart, it would be the letter to the church in Ephesus. And so I thought it'd be wise and helpful for us to linger a bit here and not just to race off to the next letter uh, next Wednesday and leave this one in its dust and forget about what we learned and to just take some time and say, okay, so what are we going to do about it? And so I want to be more specific this morning and, and simply go at it from this perspective, that if your love for Christ is faded if you sense the flame of your heart for Christ has died down, I want to suggest some some practical things that you can do to fan that flickering flame into a blazing inferno of love for Christ. So today's message is very simple. It's eight ways to love Jesus more. That's it. Eight, Eight ways to love Jesus more. And hopefully you've got the outline in front of you. You can follow along with uh, this, uh, this message. But first of all, I think we need to be absolutely honest about our love for Jesus. We need to be absolutely honest about our love for Jesus. And I think rekindling our, our love for Christ begins with an honest self-examination about where we are in our relationship with Christ. Turn to John 21, just for a moment. John 21, I think, is a good starting point This is that classic conversation that Jesus had with Peter on the shore of the Sea of Galilee after Peter had denied Christ three times. Christ had been crucified. He was now uh, risen from the dead, and uh, he was gathering his disciples back together to commission them for their ministry after he would return to heaven. And he singled out Peter. This is John 21, verse 15. He says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Shepherd my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Now, what you may not 
know about this passage is that the English word love there is used um, uh, in, in the Greek in a couple different ways. Every time love is mentioned, sometimes it's the word agape, um, and sometimes it's the word phileo. And typically, Jesus is using the word agape, do you agape me? Um, and of course, that is the highest form of love. That is God's love for us. That's the, um, the selfless, sacrificial, unconditional type of love. Phileo love is more the familial love, uh, the love that uh, a family, family members have for one another. So it's a lesser love. Some, some commentators say that we shouldn't make too much out of these two different words that John used for love here in this exchange between Jesus and Peter. It might have been just stylistic. At the same time, I think, though, it could be very significant. In light of the fact that Peter had boasted of his love for Christ or his devotion to Christ, and he even, even contrasted his devotion for Christ with the other disciples, saying, hey, if everyone else falls away, huh, you can count on me, Jesus. I ain't going nowhere. As, as if he loved Jesus more than everyone else. But then he crashed and burned, didn't he? Blew it big time. And so now after his denial, really a, he, he had a hat trick there, right? Denied him three times. Uh, Peter was no longer as proud and presumptuous as he was before. And now that he had been humbled by the Lord, he wasn't about to claim total devotion to Christ. And so Christ says, hey, do you agape me? And he says, well, Lord, you know I phileo you. And they go back and forth there. And so he used a lesser word for love, something less than total devotion, which was the only thing he felt safe claiming at that time. And Jesus even graciously accommodated him at the end in verse 17. He said, finally stopped using agape and said, do you phileo me? (laughs) And he says, yeah, you know I do that. I say that all just because I think we need to reenact this scene in our own lives. Put yourself in Peter's position for a moment and imagine Jesus looking at you and asking you, do you truly love me? Can you see him? Can you hear him? Do you truly love me? And we'd all have to respond like, Peter, Lord, you know... All things. I can't pretend to love you. I might be able to fool my spouse or my kids or my parents or my Sunday school teacher or my grow group leader or whoever, but I can't fool you. You know how much or how little I love you. I had a conversation with a young man one time who knew he wasn't where he needed to be with the Lord, and he said to me with a sense of concern, I look for affections for Christ in my heart, but I don't, I don't see any. I don't feel any. And I appreciated his, his honesty, his, his transparency, his, his vulnerability. But based on that, we both knew that perhaps it was doubtful that, that he was truly saved. 
1 Corinthians 16, verse 22 says, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. That doesn't sound like a Christian. So the baseline for being a believer is that you love Jesus. Not perfectly. Not fully. That only happened in heaven, but there needs to be at least a love for Christ. We've been talking a lot about the Puritans recently. We're doing that uh, video series through the summer on Sunday mornings. So we've, we're also reading a book on the Puritans on, on Friday morning with the men. And so I thought by way of example that it would be good to infuse some Puritanism uh, into this message this morning. And so uh, here is a book called The True Christian's Love to the Unseen Christ by a Puritan pastor named Thomas Vinson who who got kicked out of his church in London uh, during the 1600s for preaching the word. And so this is just one of those, this is one of those guys who um, I'm unashamedly uh, committed to as a spiritual hero. I, I just love the Puritans, appreciate the Puritans. And, and I think reading some of these quotes, some quotes from this book are, are going to confirm in your minds why we need the Puritans. And uh, just if the subtitle alone doesn't get your attention, the Puritans were notorious for lengthy subtitles. The, the title of the book is A True Christian's Love to the Unseen Christ. You think, okay, that's good. That's enough, right? Well, he, then, then he, he has a subtitle. Here it is. You ready? A discourse chiefly tending to excite and promote the decaying love of Christ in the hearts of Christians. Did you catch that? A discourse chiefly tending, in other words, the purpose of this discourse is to excite and promote the decaying love of Christ in the hearts of Christians. And then the verse that's there on the first page is 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. By the way, this book is really just an, an exposition, an application of 1 Peter 1, 8. Though having not seen him, you love him. And so this is the opening sentence, really the opening paragraph. He says, the life of Christianity consists very much in our love to Christ. Without love to Christ, we are as much without spiritual life as a carcass when the soul is fled from it, it is without natural life. Faith without love to Christ is a dead faith, and a Christian without love to Christ is a dead Christian, dead in sins and trespasses. In other words, what he's meaning to say, he's really not a Christian at all. Without love to Christ, we may have the name of Christians, but we are holy without the nature. We may have the form of godliness, but are holy without the power. So, be honest about where you are, but also honestly examine how you got there. And I think we need to be able to determine where we went astray or how we got off track and so we can retrace our steps in order to get back into a close relationship with Christ. Shortly after our family moved to Texas, Kelly and I were about 10 years into our marriage and one morning, she graciously confronted me by telling me, and I quote, because I'll never forget it, 
She says, it doesn't seem like you love God and me the way you used to. And being the godly, mature man that I am, gracious husband, of course, I received that so well and said, honey, you're right. I, I need to change. Would you pray for me? And no, I immediately turned that back on her and told her a few things that I was thinking about her. And as you can imagine, that didn't go real well. And so before I walked out the door to go to work that morning, she handed me a letter and she said, hey, when you get a chance today, just whenever you get a free moment, just, just read this letter. And I wasn't sure what it was, and so I took it and threw it in my bag, and somewhere around lunchtime, I remembered it, and I was sitting in my car, had a few minutes, and I thought, well, I guess I probably need to read that letter, because she's going to ask me when I get home tonight. And so I pulled that letter out. Well, I opened it up, and it was a letter that I had written to her when we were dating. And I read that letter, and you remember, I may have mentioned this uh, recently, about I used to sign all my letters that I wrote to her, righteous and radical. That was my signature idea, righteous and radical. And, uh, I mean, I was on fire for Christ when I was in high school or high school and, and college. And, uh, and so I, was, I read this letter, and I was like, who's this guy? Where did he go? And I had to admit she was right. Something had changed. And, and she had seen a change in my relationship with Christ, which affected my relationship with her. And so I got home that night, and before we went to bed, I said, hey, um, I read that letter. You got any more of those? And as most of you gals can appreciate, she went into the closet and came back with a box full of letters. In fact, every letter that I'd ever wrote, written to her when we were dating and engaged, she handed it to me, and she went to bed, and I stayed up late that night reading every one of those letters. And when I got done reading those letters, I got out our wedding video, the VHS, right, the brick, put in the VHS, and I watched that, our wedding video. And then I wrote her a love letter, seeking her forgiveness for letting my love for her wane and expressing my desire to change and asking her to, to pray for me and to help me. And you know what? God blessed that. And we experienced a, a wonderful revival and, and renewal of our love for each other. And it all started with just being honest and being humble enough to admit that you're not where you once were and you know you need to change. So begin by being absolutely honest about your love for Jesus. Secondly, spend time with Jesus in the word and prayer. Spend time with Jesus in the word and prayer. I mean, and spending time together is the key for any relationship to grow and flourish. I mean, marriage is, is such a gift from God on so many levels. But I think the, the, the ultimate blessing of marriage is that 
gives us a window into the beautiful love relationship between Christ and us. And that's why God ordained marriage, that he wanted to have a picture, a, a, a parable of sorts of, of this decision he made in eternity past to, to provide his, his son a, a bride. And so he said, well, I'm going to do marriage. Husband and wife, man and woman, they're going to come together. And it's going to be a picture of our relationship or the relationship between the son and the church. And so that's why, you know, the longer you're married, I think the greater you appreciate Christ's love for you. If, if nothing else, the fact that my wife forgives me for the same sins and now we're going on 34 years and I'm still committing some of the same sins and she'll still forgive me. That's an expression of Christ's love for me, right? That she's kind, tenderhearted, forgiving, just as God in Christ has forgiven me. And so it's a beautiful picture of, of, of Christ. And, and so marriage, we can go to school on marriage. One, one is a picture of the other. And so we... Uh, you know, the more time you spend together as a couple, the more you grow to love each other. But if you neglect to spend time together, your love for each other begins to diminish, does it not? I've had couples sitting in my office who have fallen out of love with one another, and, and I'll just ask them a simple question. I'm like, can you just walk me through your week? Give me just kind of a, your basic schedule. What are you doing, guy? What are you doing, gal? And guess what is so often the case? Like, they're like two ships passing in the night. They're, they're, they're spending no time together. They're, yeah, they're living in the same house. They're sharing the same address, right? But, man, they're just, there's no engagement. I mean, whether even if it's in good things like the kids, we're focused on our kids. And so all their time and attention and energy goes to the kids and, rather than one another. And it's the same in our relationship with Christ. Christianity is not a... A religion. It's not a bunch of rules and regulations. It's a relationship. And so the primary way we build our relationship with Christ is by spending time with him. And the way we spend time with him is right here. Listening to him speak to us through his word and then responding back through prayer. And I think it's the neglect of these secret duties. They're, we call them secret duties because we do them in secret. Nobody knows whether you're reading your Bible or praying but you between you and the Lord. But neglecting those things, I think, is the primary cause of declining love for Christ. I, I guarantee you, if you feel like your love for Christ has waned, what has happened is you've probably slacked off on spending time with him in the word and prayer. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Again, Let's see what Vincent has to say to us. Would you have much love unto Christ whom you have never seen? Look much upon this picture and image in the scriptures. The scriptures are Christ's love letters. There are many epistles and love letters, as it were, in the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, wherein Christ gives most kind expressions of most endeared love unto his people. Read much and read uh, excuse me, read much and study Christ's love letters, especially those parts of the scriptures wherein Christ expresses most of his kindness and love. Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you, and this will feed and maintain your love to Christ. 
He goes on to talk about prayer. If you would attain high measures of love to Christ, you must apply yourselves unto God in prayer and therein seek diligently to him for it. If you would have much love to Christ in your hearts, you must be often at the throne of grace upon your knees and there humbly acknowledge, if not the lack, yet the weakness of your love to Christ. Bewail your sins which dampen your affections and earnestly request that he would work your hearts unto a strong love. Tell him that this love to Christ, though it is your duty, yet it is his gift that you ought to act it, but this you cannot do unless he works it. Tell him how easily he can kindle this fire of love to Christ in your bosoms and blow it up into a flame. Tell him he has bid you ask and you shall have, and whatever you ask according to his will he hears, and that it is his will that you should love Christ not only truly but also strongly. Therefore... He says, request that you may have such a love to Christ as may overpower all other love and keep your hearts from all inordinacy of affections to anything beneath and besides the Lord Jesus Christ. Plead how much it will be for his glory that you should have much love unto Christ that hereby you shall be enabled to honor him all the more in the world. So good. So helpful. I just had the privilege of completing a, a premarital counseling uh, session with uh, a couple who's getting married this Monday. They're sitting back there cuddling right there, Quentin and Annabelle. And a uh, couple more hours, guys, you'll be there. Cross the finish line, woohoo, right? Um, but you know, I'm just reminded every time I walk a couple through kind of just the marriage 101 and kind of prep them, not just for their wedding day, but their marriage, right? A lifetime of love together. It always comes down to one thing. And I think sometimes I disappoint people that I do their premarital counseling because I'm like, hey, listen, I'm going to tell you the secret to a great marriage. You ready? I'm serious. You ready? You got your notebooks out, your pen out. You're going to write this down? And they're like, oh, okay. And I'm like, you ready? Have your quiet time every day. They're like, what? I just invested six weeks with you to tell me something you could have just texted me like in a few seconds? Have my quiet time? Yeah, that's it. Because I think the, 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 the way to maintain, maintain a close relationship with each other is to maintain a close relationship with Christ. And I guarantee you, uh, you've experienced this, I'm sure, if you're married that whenever you stray away from Christ, you also stray away from your spouse. And that's why the best advice I can give young couples is to make it their highest priority to cultivate intimacy with Christ by reading his word and talking to him through prayer every day. And as you do that, you, you feed the flame, you keep the flame of love for Christ burning in your heart, and guess what, that flame fuels the flame of love for your spouse. So there you go. The secret to a great marriage. Have your quiet time. Spend time with Jesus in the word and prayer. Number three, you want to love Jesus more, hang around people who love Jesus. This is a basic, one of those basic principles in God's word that you become like the people you spend time with. Proverbs 13, 20, he who walks with the wise will be wise. 
but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Proverbs 22, 24, do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man lest you learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. Again, what are these Proverbs teaching us? That you become like the people you hang around. By the way, what's the goal of spending time with other Christians? Why are we gathered here today? Obviously to worship the Lord, to sit under the preaching of his word. But Hebrews 10.23 says, let us consider how to what? Stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And so when we gather together, it should have a stimulating effect on our love for Christ and our love for one another. Those of you who like to camp and sit up late at night around a campfire, brings out the pyro in all of us, and uh, we sit there with our sticks poking the fire, and you know it gets after it's been burning there for a number of hours, the, the, the coals at the, in the center are just white hot, and, and you, kinda, you can take one of those coals and drag it out of the fire with a stick, and what happens to that coal? It begins to die out, doesn't it? But then you can push that coal back into the fire, and what does it do? It's kind of fun to watch. It just kind of reignites, doesn't it? That's the picture of how the body of Christ is supposed to affect each of us. Listen to what Vincent says here. He says, associate yourselves most with those that have most love unto Christ. You may fetch light from their light. You may fetch warmth from their fire. Dead coals are kindled by the living, and your dead hearts may be kindled with love to Christ by the warm discourse of those that have warm hearts. So if you see somebody that you know, and you're like, man, why, why, why don't I love Jesus like that person? Man, I can really love Jesus. Well, guess what? Go hang out with them. And maybe you'll catch on fire. They'll, they'll, you know, light a fire in your heart. That's why I love to read these old dead guys. Because, you know, you read a biography of somebody that's on, in passion for Christ and it, it fires you up. J.C. Ryle, in his classic little book called Thoughts for Young Men, he was giving young men advice as they were looking for a spouse, a wife. He says this, quote, your wife must either help your soul or harm it. There is no neutral. She will either fan the flame of religion in your heart or throw cold water upon it and make it burn low. Now, that's not just a slam on wives, okay? The Jezebels of the world, right? That's not what it's talking about. That, that's just the, the principle is this. The people you hang around that you spend the most time with are going to have the greatest impact and influence on your love for Christ. And they're either going to be fanning the flame of love for Christ or they're going to be like a damper. They're going to be like throwing a bucket of water on it. And the reality is some of you are hanging around with people who are distracting you from Christ or dampening your love for Christ. And guess what? You need to get away from those people. They're not helping you. They're hurting you. So hang around people who love Jesus. Number four, you want to love Jesus more? Hate everything that competes with your love for Jesus. Right? This is, we're talking, what's the opposite of love? Hate. 
And the Bible makes it clear that the, the opposite of love for Christ is love for the world. What keeps us from, from loving Christ is love for the things of the world. Jesus himself said that it is impossible to love him and the world at the same time. You can't love God and money. Matthew 6, 24. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the most provided of life is not from the Father but from the world. Again, Vincent addresses this. He says, take your leave of the world and all things therein. Bid farewell to the flattering honors, the deceitful riches, the glancing pleasures that are here below. Bid adieu to them and leave them to those who place their chief happiness in them. He says, particularly take heed of inordinate love to the world and the things in the world, the prevalence of which love will dampen your love to Christ. But how much more the world gets of your, by how much more the world gets of your love, by so much less Christ will have of it. You must have dying affections to perishing things if you would have a living and active love to the ever-living Jesus. Do you remember what James said in James chapter 4? James chapter 4, verse 4. He says, you adulteresses. Well, that's special. Thank you, James. <laughs> he just calls us unfaithful. You, you bunch of unfaithful people, you adulteresses. Obviously, he's speaking spiritually, but his point is you're committing spiritual adultery. Well, you'll say, how, how are we doing that? He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's like every time we sin, we're cheating on Jesus. And then verse 5 says, or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. The bottom line is the Holy Spirit doesn't like to share space. He doesn't like to share our hearts with anyone or anything. How do you think my wife would respond if I brought home another woman and said, hey, honey, um, I want you to meet my new friend. I thought it'd be fun if we all lived together. I really love you, but I also love her too, so I just wanted to live with both of you. You okay with that? After I picked the seven iron out of my skull, right, um, I don't think that would go real well, and it shouldn't go real well. That's wrong. Listen to Spurgeon in Morning and Evening, September 12th. He says, your Lord is very jealous of your love, O believer. Did he choose you? He cannot bear that you should choose another. Did he buy you with his own blood? He cannot endure that you should think that you are your own or that you belong to this world. He loved you with such a love that he would not stop in heaven without you. He would sooner die than you should perish. And he cannot endure that anything should stand between your heart's love and himself. 
He cannot bear that you should hew out broken cisterns when the overflowing fountain is always free to you. This is grievous to our jealous Lord. Oh, that we may have grace this day to keep our hearts in sacred chastity for our beloved alone with sacred jealousy, shutting our eyes to all the fascinations of the world. It's been so encouraging to... um, see Chris Steyer and hear him promote this in our counseling ministry more and more, that what is the, the real motive for not sinning? Is it, is it really the fear of punishment? Is that what motivates you not to sin? Like you think, well, if I do this, then this is going to happen. That's going to be bad. And I'm not going to have to deal with the consequences. And we try to scare ourselves into not sinning. Rather than simply saying, how could I possibly sin against Christ in light of his great love for me. That is a much higher, purer, better motivation. Wouldn't you agree? So hate everything that competes with your love for Jesus. Number five, show Jesus how much you love him by your obedience. Jesus said in no uncertain terms that the greatest proof that we love him is that we obey him. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. And so every time we disobey Christ, it's like throwing a bucket of water, cold water, on the flame of our love for Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 talks about quenching the Holy Spirit. Again, listen to Vincent, what he has to say here. Your love to Christ is known by your obedience unto Christ. If Christ is your beloved, he is also your Lord. If you have true affection for him, you will yield subjection unto him. If you love Christ, you are careful to please Christ. You are not the servants of the flesh to take care to please the flesh, but you are servants of Christ to take care above all persons and all things to please Christ. If you love Christ, you are fearful of giving just just occasion of offense unto men, but above all, you are fearful of displeasing and offending your Lord. Do you labor so to walk that you may please Christ in the way of sincere and universal obedience? Are you hearty in your obedience unto Christ? Have you a respect to all his commandments? Is it your grief that you fall short in your obedience unto Christ? If you can say in the presence of the Lord and your hearts that you do not live and allow yourselves in the practice of any known sin which Christ forbids, nor in the neglect of any known duty which Christ commands, this is a sure evidence of true love to Jesus Christ. Talking about sins of commission and sins of omission. In other words, the more you stop doing what Christ forbids and you start doing what he commands, the more your love for him will grow. I've had husbands come to me over the years and tell me they they want to divorce their wives. And I'm like, why? And they're like, well, I just don't love her anymore. And, you know, being the compassionate, patient counselor that I am, I'm like, so? Since when did that become a grounds for divorce? God commands you to love your wife like he loves you. And if you don't, rather than leaving her, you need to ask God to help you learn to love her again. And so you need to today start 
talking to her in a loving way. Start treating her in loving ways and investing time and money and energy into your relationship because the Bible says where your treasure is, there your what? Heart will be as well. Matthew 6, 21, obviously talking about monetary wealth there, but I think the principle applies. So show Jesus how much you love him by your obedience. Number six, tell others about Jesus. You want to love Jesus more? Tell others about him. I mean, this is just normal, natural stuff here we're talking about that, that we, we tell other people about the things we love, whether it's our family, our spouse, our kids, right? We talk about those, about some food we just had. Did you, have you tried this? This is amazing, right? We, we talk about those things or, hey, how about the Astros or how about whatever, the, that new car, you know, we, we share these things with one another. All you have to do is listen to a person talk for a few minutes and you're going to learn very quickly who or what they love the most. Because when you truly love someone or something, you can't help but talk about it. And it's not a duty. You don't have to make yourself do it. It's just natural. It's a delight. And the problem isn't coming up with the courage to tell others about Jesus, the one we love. It, rather, it's coming up with the words to express how much we love him. And if we truly love Christ, we're going to want others to love him too. But if we don't love Christ, guess what? We won't care if others love him, and therefore we won't tell others about him. Vincent says, moreover, does it not argue little love to Christ that you speak so little of him and for him and you're conversing with one another? If you had much love to Christ, would not this love breathe forth more in your discourses? You can readily speak of yourselves, which reveals your great self-love. How little do you commend your Lord and Master and extol his excellencies with your lips? And does not this evidence that you can have, that you have but little love to him in your hearts? You can readily discourse about news and public occurrences, but when you leave Christ quite out of your discourse, it shows that you have not an abundance of love to him because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak of their riches. When you speak but little of Christ, it is a sign that you love him little. So tell others about Christ. Tell others about Jesus. Number seven, we're almost there. Long for Jesus to come back. You want to love Jesus? Long for Jesus to come back. The Bible says that every Christian should long for the return of Christ. Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 4.8, in the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, Paul said, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to those who have loved his appearing. You know what it's like to be a part of, from someone that you love? I mean, it's torture, right? You hate it. You can't stand being apart from, from that person you truly love for a long period of time. You, you miss them so much, and you count the days until they return. You can't wait for them to come home, and that waiting causes your love for them to intensify. What do we say? Distance makes the heart grow what? Fonder. Desire also, Vincent says, and long for the second appearance of Christ at the last day when he says, surely I come quickly. Do you say amen? Even so come, Lord Jesus. Look upon time as slow of heel and wing so that it runs no faster, so that it flies no swifter. Look to the end of time and long for it because then with these eyes you shall see him whom your love, whom your soul loves. 
Number eight. You want to love Jesus more? Remember how much Jesus loves you. The reality is that the Christian life is filled with all sorts of hills and valleys that we experience in our relationship with Christ. And through all the ups and downs, we must never, ever forget that the Christian life is not about how much we love Jesus, but it's about how much he loves us. Amen? And if you haven't heard anything yet this morning, hear that. Take that home with you. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We love because he, what? First loved us. And even though your love for him may have changed, his love for you has not changed and will never change. No matter what you do or what you don't do, Christ will never love you any more or any less. Why? Because nothing can or ever will separate us from the love of Christ. Romans chapter 8. Think back to that restoration of Peter in John 21 that we started with this morning. The whole time that Jesus was challenging Peter's love for him. Peter, do you really love me? He was actually communicating his love to Peter. And even though Peter had failed him miserably, it didn't change how much Christ loved him. And so I think this exchange on the seashore there was not so much about Jesus providing Peter with an opportunity to reaffirm his love for him. It was way more about Jesus reaffirming his love for Peter. 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul said, for the love of Christ controls us or compels us or motivates us. In other words, Christ's love for me drives me in ministry. He died so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Galatians 2.20, I love this. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who, what, remember? Loved me and gave himself up for me. Beloved, listen, nothing, nothing will rekindle your waning love for Christ better and quicker than to meditate on his faithful, unwaning, unwavering love for you. You ready for the finale? Every time I read one of these quotes, it's like a firework goes off. But this is now... They're just letting it all go. They're sending it. Okay, here's Vincent. He's going he's gonna to send it, and this is the finale. You ready? He says this, Would you attain much love to Christ? Be much in contemplation of Christ. Think and think again of how wonderful and matchless his love is. What heights that cannot be reached. What depths in it that cannot be fathomed. What other dimensions which cannot be comprehended. He said, get often into the mount of divine contemplation and there look upwards unto heaven and think with yourselves there at the right hand of the throne of God is my beloved Jesus. Oh, dear Jesus, how lovely art thou in thyself, the darling of heaven, the delight of the Father, the admiration of angels. Oh, what brightness of glory, what shining luster art thou arrayed with. Thou art clothed with most excellent majesty and honor. Thou art girded with infinite might and power. The beauty of thy face is most wonderful. And does this lovely 
fair one, this fairest of 10,000, this most excellent and altogether lovely person bear a particular love for me? To such a vile worm as me? To such a dead dog as me? To such an undeserving, ill-deserving, hell-deserving sinner as me? Oh, what marvelous kindness is this. What infinite riches of free grace. Does he know me by name? Has he given himself for me and given himself to me? And shall I not give him my heart? Am I written in his book, redeemed by his blood, clothed with his righteousness, beautified with his image? Has he put the dignity of a child of God upon me and prepared a place in the Father's house for me? Oh, wonderful. Oh, admirable. What shall I render? What return shall I make? And yet, am I slow, slow of heart to love this dear and sweet Jesus? Awake, my soul. Awake from your dullness and stupidity. Shake off the sleep which glues your eyelids so close together. Shake out the dust of the earth which has gotten into your eyes and keeps you from the view of your beloved. Such contemplations of Christ and pleadings with your own souls will tend exceedingly to the promotion of your love unto Christ. You tell me where you can read something like that in our generation. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for your unfailing, unending, unwavering love for us. I pray even as Paul prayed for the Ephesian church that they would, they would be able to comprehend how great Christ's love was for them, that, that we as a church would be able to comprehend how great Christ's love is for us. And Lord, you know I needed to hear this message today, and if no one else got anything out of it, it's okay, because I needed to get something out of this, and so thank you for the opportunity to be reminded again of these basic principles that I seem to so often forget, and so, Lord, would you use um, this message to stimulate greater love for Christ in all of us, Father, so that... Um, you would never have to say to this church, to our church, but I have this one thing against you um, because we just do everything we do. We stay sound in our doctrine and we serve faithfully, ultimately because we love Jesus. May that be true of us. We pray this for his glory in his name. Amen.